episode five, I went through the Media Guardian with a highlighter and applied for all the big corporate journalism jobs with enormous salaries. Writing out my CV even made me giggle. What would these employers make of it? My work experience of our dogs, Dog World, Terrier World, Kennel Gazette, was certainly going to make me stand out from the crowd. I don't think I've yet mentioned Terrier World. I did work experience as a child with a charming printer who had Kerry Blues. Long story, lovely chap, but he ended up doing some time for counterfeiting £20 notes. In hindsight, as he was printing his own money, he could more than afford to be a specialist magazine proprietor. Terrier World asked me to interview Arthur Scargill at the height of the miners' strike. He was refusing to talk to almost all of the traditional press at this time. Arthur had Airedales, in case you didn't get a copy of Terrier World. He told me earnestly that he'd often come home late at night and sleep on the sofa, not wanting to wake the house. Sometimes, he said, it felt like his dog was the only one in the world that loved him. Arthur and I had much more in common than bad hair. I was surprised to be called for an interview at British Telecom's very modern head office, but I only had a sketchy idea of what the job and corporate relations generally was. It was still in the era before Google. I was shown into an impressive glass-fronted office with two handsome young men who started interviewing me. I couldn't help but notice a succession of other men walking past and looking in furtively. It occurred to me that I hadn't yet seen another woman. They had a copy of my CV and they seemed most keen to know more. They said they literally had never seen anything like it before. So, what is Dog World? The blonde one asked, smirking. Is it a satirical publication? I had to roll with it. There was no chance of them taking my career to date seriously. How we all laughed, and I assumed my chances of getting the job non-existent. I was therefore stunned to be offered the position. The salary was more than double my kennel club pay, but better, they would train me in radio journalism and the very latest thing, desktop publishing. I was both delighted and um, quite terrified. Getting the first non-doggy job I had applied for was totally unexpected. I hated the thought of leaving Charlie, my boozy immediate boss, but he wished me all the luck in the world. He just wished he could come with me too. The ultimate bosses were incredulous that I wanted to leave. They'd assumed I would be there for life. My job was advertised and I offered to stay to train up my replacement. 
but the job didn't attract very many applicants. And only one showed up for the interview. A handsome and charming young newspaper chap from Australia called Brian. He alleged some dog knowledge from living next door to a vet. Charlie asked him lots of questions about beer, which Brian answered enthusiastically. He was able to start immediately, so we all adjourned to the pub over the road. Brian was travelling the world and had recently landed in Britain. A few days later, he admitted to us that he actually hadn't lived next door to a vet. But he seemed very attentive and listened intently to all my instructions. Charlie was most relieved to have found someone to take over the very complicated interactive features I had started. My leaving card was already doing the rounds when I discovered Brian was on a substantially higher salary than they had paid me. It was the 1980s and testicles descended into the scrotum seemed to be as highly desirable in the workplace as it was in the showring. It made me slightly less guilty about leaving for more money. Brian was very bright. They were very lucky to have him. My leaving do was great fun and all my Kennel Club colleagues were there to send me off. Charlie did a speech which almost had me in tears. What happened next was a plot twist no one saw coming. Brian stood up and addressed the room. I can't do an Australian accent. (laughs) I have an announcement to make. This is a joint leaving do. I am going too. I have fallen in love with Beverly and I don't want to stay when she goes. What a bombshell. Charlie started laughing hysterically. He thought this was hilarious. Dr. Death, it has to be said, was less pleased. I was stunned. In years to come, one of the ultimate bosses would later say I had left under a cloud. But honestly, I had no idea what Brian was planning. My first day at British Telecom was immediately after my very unusual Kennel Club leaving do. My successor, Aussie Jern O'Brien, had surprised everyone, including me, uh, by declaring his love and resigning on the spot. It had been a lot to process. Being offered a much better job at the Nottingham Evening Post was, in hindsight, probably the real reason he was so abruptly abruptly leaving the Kennel Club. Our horrible bosses, however, still tried to woo Brian to stay by offering him even more money. They even suggested he might replace Charlie as editor if he wanted. How rude. But Brian was very loyal to his new drinking buddy. 
The swanky modern BT head office was a huge contrast to the dusty and gloomy Victorian kennel club. I was met in the atrium by Tony, who was very sharply dressed, and a doppelganger of Barry White. He showed me to my desk and introduced me to my new colleagues. A cheeky chap called Martin popped his head around the divide and announced we were going to be neighbours. He told me very proudly he'd been the deputy editor of Playboy before the even sexier world of corporate telecommunications journalism had wooed him. In the prime window seat was Harry, a very, very muscular chap who had to have his shirts made to measure because his arms were so enormous. He had been the bass guitarist on Kenny's only hit record, The Bump. And he was also occasionally an extra on EastEnders. On my desk sat a brand new top-of-the-range Apple Macintosh. It was like it was from the future. I had no idea how to turn it on. I turned to Tony and asked him what he'd like me to do first. Maybe I could make him a cup of tea. Not my strongest suit. Everyone laughed. It turned out that Tony wasn't my boss. He was my secretary. Why was I going to need a secretary? The next day, I had a training course booked to learn all about Apple Macs and desktop publishing. So there was literally nothing I could yet do. Everyone agreed my first day would be best spent getting to know my colleagues. Harry suggested the venue, which would also give me a chance to learn how to claim expenses. It was a Blues Brother tribute bar. Publishing and pubs seemed very closely related in the 1980s. Within two rounds of drinks, they were all dancing on the tables and singing. Up to this point, I had never seen the film. Martin declared I needed a much broader education than just learning how to use PageMaker. I never did learn anything about corporate relations. It didn't seem to matter. No one probably ever read the beautiful publications we expensively produced. The work was easy and always over with very quickly. We were underworked and overpaid. So nothing like the kennel club at all. I soon found I was daydreaming and missing dogs. I had accepted a commission to write a little book about Cavalier King Charles Spaniels in my spare time. At the kennel club, I had complained to the publisher about the quality of the TFH books. His response was to see if I could do any better. Most of my inflated salary was going on train fares home to Liverpool or to Nottingham to see Brian. Anything to get away from the impossible to sell Brixton flat 
that was very full of my rather grumpy ex-boyfriend Adrian. One weekend, Brian hopped on a train to meet the dogs and my parents. Or, as he was referring to them as, my future in-laws gulp. I was already up in Liverpool preparing my parents for the visitation of a new boyfriend. Mum had rather liked the old one. Adrian was almost as left-wing as she was. He'd not been very fond of the dogs, though. Brian the Aussie was a few years younger than me. And as he stepped off the train at Lime Street Station, I wasn't entirely sure it was him. He had dyed his hair jet black and appeared to be dressed as someone from the 1960s. He was obviously very excited to be in Liverpool and the garb was possibly some sort of tribute to the Fab Four. My parents, while initially bemused by his appearance, were charmed that Brian wanted to know everything possible about the northwest of England. I did briefly wonder whether tourism or romance was the real reason for his trip, but the dogs seemed to like him too. I think we were at our all-time maximum of bearded collies at this point, and each one jumped all over and licked him. Hmm... It had been a bit rainy, so the dogs certainly made their mark. And some of the larger ones, quite an impression. Sally, my favourite, was rather standoffish. But she always was, with everyone, apart from immediate family. Strangely, all talk of an impending marriage stopped after this visit. I found it was getting harder and harder to say goodbye to the dogs and head back to lonely old London and a job I could do with my eyes closed. Keeping them open was often the problem, as it was just so tiresome writing about telecommunications. I was due back at my desk at boring old BT on Monday morning. The week ahead, lightly peppered with writing articles no one ever read about things I knew nothing about. As I got out of the lift, I was greeted by my work neighbour, ex-playboy deputy editor, Martin. He was brandishing a copy of The Guardian. It's your dream job, he cried. I assumed this was going to be a joke. but. When I read the advert he'd circled, I had to agree. Someone was looking for a launch editor of a new dog magazine. I had to sit down. I'd already worked on pretty much every title with the word dog in it. None of them reflected how I now felt about dogs. They were all about showing and breeding. It was probably some tiny niche kitchen table project, I told myself. It seemed crazy to see the little ad among the flashy corporate journalism jobs in the media section.
Harry rang the number and soon discovered that this quaint little advert had been placed by associated newspapers, the people who owned the Daily Mail. The concept was a magazine for pet dog owners. The show people already had their own publications. This was to give a voice to man's best friend. My heart raced. I was already producing the first edition in my head. I couldn't wait. I wrote my application and it was in the post by lunchtime. I later discovered that my very flamboyant handwriting had caught the eye of Michelle, the secretary who opened the post. She put my application on the top of the pile with a post-it note saying that I was her favourite. My love of good pens was vindicated. I was on the shortlist. I am five foot two. But the interview process was going to make The Apprentice seem like a walk in the park with a bearded collie. Brian phoned to say he was moving in with me and Adrian in London. This escalation was a surprise. He'd been made redundant.